This is Tasting Together. Toronto's news, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome to Tasting Together. I'm your host, Andre Peru, and what you're hearing in the background is one of my favorite parts of Christmas. I am joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. And Maroki, I don't know about you, the Christmas season doesn't really start until Hans Gruber falls off the Nakatomi Plaza. That is quite the choice uh, for vibing for Christmas. I would have thought of something a little more chillax, like, you know, I don't, or maybe not, maybe it's not chillax. Maybe it's actually quite um, provocative when, you know, Mariah Carey's first Christmas song shows up in the mall. You know what? I, I think we've just started. I, I, a lot of the things we're going to be talking about today, I think, have to do with a bit of divisiveness with things that people love at this time of year. I know for a lot of people, there's debate whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It is. And um, how do you feel about the Mariah Carey Christmas song, All I Want for Christmas is You? Honestly, I'm staunchly neutral. I don't know if it's um, because of all the years I worked retail in my youth and hearing it over and over and over again, the mall has just simply made me immune. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, all right. So, so hot take number two. I love that song so much that I actually recorded a cover version of it with a former coworker that we distribute among our friends around the holidays. I think I've heard it before. Yeah. It, it's, it's a point of like, people think that they embarrass me by bringing it up, but I'm pretty hard to embarrass. I think you've learned that about me by now. I think any, anyone in the audience will get the sense that like I'm pretty laid back and just lean into my goofiness. Yes. Yes. Yes, you do. And I think that's what makes us such good friends in some ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of the Nakatomi Plaza, I think you have this really amazing piece of artwork that you created through the pandemic that I think you should tell everyone that you did for Christmas one year. <laughs> I mean, that was how I wanted to kick off the show. My favorite part of uh, Christmas, apart from getting together with family and friends, is the Christmas baking. And um, over the past decade, I've become a bit of a gingerbread architect. And during that that pandemic Christmas in 2020, when we couldn't see our family, we could have the one other friend over you know, the small, tiny, socially distanced, you know, following the rules group got together and I made a Nakatomi Plaza out of gingerbread and set it on fire, complete with two little mini Hans Gruber and John McClane gingerbread men. And uh, if you go to at Andre Weinerview on Instagram, you can see the highlight reel of how we put that together. But um all of this is a roundabout way of saying, like, gingerbread at this time of year is just one of the greatest things on the planet. I remember seeing all these movies and storybooks of people making beautiful gingerbreads, uh, gingerbread houses at Christmas, intricately decorated, and thinking to myself, I cannot wait till I have the opportunity to do this. Um, my family did celebrate Christmas, but, you know, I think we, as we've inferred at in previous conversations about Thanksgiving and stuff, we never really celebrated all the traditions that come with Christmas necessarily outside of really the tree and presents. And I remember when I finally got my first little gingerbread kit, um, feeling very disheartened learning just how hard it is to make gingerbread houses <laughs> and how ugly mine turned out to be. <laughs> it takes a lot of practice. I mean, this is one of those things where it was a bit of a sore point because I do make fairly ornate. I've made gingerbread cathedrals. Uh, I've made some very elaborate gingerbread cottages. 
my wife is a pastry chef at a very good restaurant in Toronto. My wife has worked in fine dining. And the first few times I posted gingerbread architecture on Instagram, a lot of my friends are just like, oh, how much did Anya help you with that? And it's just like, no, I'm the one that does the baking. Like, that is my thing. Um, I mean, it's just one of those things where I fell into Christmas baking by accident. My um, my mom used to be a Fast and Furious Christmas baker. And there was one year, I remember I was in university. My mom was still a nurse working like 12-hour shifts. And I, I pushed my luck. She, my mom was just like, I've done all the Christmas baking. And I'm just like, well, what about the thimble cookies? You didn't make any thimble cookies this year. And uh, that was like me waving a red cape in front of a bull. And my mom was just like, if you want them so bad, make them yourself. And I was learning to cook, but not super into it. And I made the cookies. And that was the year that Christmas baking became part of my job because mine turned out better than hers. I, I actually have to make a batch and mail them to my dad every year. Like he always asks me, so, uh, Andre, are you going to be making the thimble cookies this year? And your mom rolled with it? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's sort of become, I mean, it's one of the things like I learned from my mom. So it's kind of nice to be able to take something off of her plate, but... I want to get back into what you just said about, you know, your disappointment with the gingerbread house. And, you know, it is one thing where I definitely take it for granted with the people that I have around me that Christmas is just a normal part of life. Um, what What is your experience with Christmas baking? And apart from picking up the gingerbread kit, like, is this something that... Like, do you have a favorite Christmas cookie? Is this something where you have friends who have, have got you up to speed on the on the Christmasness? So I'm very lucky in that um, I, in my adult life um, and in my young, young adult life, some of my friends have invited me over for enjoying Christmas Eve festivities with them. Um, one of my friends comes from a German family and, you know, I've enjoyed all the Christmas spreads and I grew up in Kitchener, Waterloo. So very Germanic city and the St. Jacob's farmer's market always has this one group of bakers that come in this one particular company and they make these very small little mini christmas cookies and i go in and buy like two dozen of them oh, every christmas um i cannot tell you what the difference between all of them are like if you ask me what my favorite christmas cookie is i would just say i don't know like all of them <laughs> for the most part i don't really know how to nail them down per se i grew up with those i think they're like the pillsbury logs yeah you know where they have the little like decor like snowman or the the christmas tree in the middle and just slice them up and throw them on a tray and bake it that's that's the extent of my christmas baking growing up and honestly i i still kind of love them i loved how the decorative part was always a little bit softer in the middle i don't know if it's the artificial flavoring or whatever <laughs> but it had a soft gooeyness in the middle um but yeah i i, I would say that that's probably the extent of my christmas baking or maybe, you know, when at, at when you were a kid at school and you had to like sell, you know, do the fundraising and you sold the the like dough, those that's it. You know, the, the nostalgia is strong for those uh you know, those store bought. I mean it, it is pretty cool when you're a kid and you take that tube home and you get the cool shapes in the middle because that's one thing where even though I'm I'm a decent gingerbread architect, I can't do intricate designs on cookies. That's one thing I definitely leave to my wife. But I wanted to leave the listeners with a, sh a short roundup where if you don't feel like putting in the work and doing the homemade Christmas baking yourself, because we are getting closer to the holidays. It's the 10th of December today. Uh, so you really only have about two weeks left. Um, you know, for someone like you, Maroki, where you don't have a lot of experience with Christmas, it's go big 
or go home if, if we're getting together over the holidays. Okay, well, I'm ready to go big. Okay, Nadej, which is uh, right up near Summerhill. That's one of their bakeries. A Bouche de Noël, which is something that um, I discovered when I was in France for New Year's one year, but it's just like the height of decadence, this log of like chocolatey, nutty goodness. And none of these things are, are, are cheap, but I think things worth going out of your way. If you have sort of your set Christmas traditions to discover some new ways to enjoy the holidays. Mm-hmm. And it, if we're speaking about my neighborhood, there's a, if you want to look at smaller spots, there's a place called Crack the Creme on Bathurst Street. And if you want to go a little less traditional, they do these really adorable macarons that just have like little cats and, and little pandas or little seal faces on them that are absolutely delicious. Throw a Santa Claus on a macaron and it's Christmas. I am hey. so on board with that. Exactly. And if anyone else has suggestions as well, um, please feel free to drop us a line on Instagram, Andre at Andre Wine Review or myself at Nine Ounces, please. Because we have, you know, about what, 15 days of Christmas breaking that we can share with everyone. And stepping off from the countdown to Christmas, a discussion that you and I were having, uh, just thinking about Christmas parties that we might be or holiday parties that we're being invited to. Uh, we've got a little bit of a wish list of places that if you're doing some holiday entertaining, you might want to check out. It might be too late for this year, but we want to put some places on your radar. So that's coming up right after the break with Andre Pru and Maroki Tong on 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Tasting Together. Toronto's News, today's talk. 640 Toronto. Welcome, welcome back to Tasting Together on 640 Toronto. I'm Maroki Tong, and I'm here with Andre Pru chatting about cool places to visit over the holidays with your family and friends, especially if they're in town. It's like, what are the it places, Andre, that we should take people around Toronto when they're coming to visit? Yeah, I think this is a little bit of a follow-up to our Michelin Guide discussion that we had last week, which you can hear on the 640 Toronto website if you've missed an episode of Tasting Together. Always fun to go back and take a look at the back catalogue. Uh, but I mean, there's some interesting places in the city that didn't make the cut for the the Michelin Guide, but I think are noteworthy for people to put on their lists, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Michelin Guide, we discussed before, was talking about quality ingredients, and it has a spectacular meal. But sometimes you go to a place because of the views and the vibe. And I think Toronto has a lot of cool spots for that. Definitely. A hundred percent. I know that for me... Um, you know, as we've mentioned, and we, we say all the time, like I am a wine guy that has been the realm that I have existed in since 2010. I have been fortunate enough to dine in the basement of barbarians, um, a handful of times. And it's just a really cool thing about that space. Like barbarians is an icon in Toronto, uh, and definitely one of the best steakhouses on the planet. You know, if you're looking for a place that's a step up from one of the chains, and this is no knocks against places like the keg, which is still a fantastic place to get a steak. But if you want to see what the keg is like uh, at the next level, you need to head to just off of Young and Dundas to check out Barbarians. I'm pretty sure that Barbarians is likely booked full to the end of the year. But hey, it's always worth trying. Always worth trying. Just to, to paint a picture of what the basement looks like, they have a very big wine cellar and you don't need to be a wine aficionado to appreciate it like it is a floor to ceiling i think it must be like 30 foot ceilings just floor to ceiling of 
some of the finest and rarest bottles on the planet. But just you talked about a vibe. That place is is a vibe. It's a vibe. Well, going in the complete opposite direction of the basement to sky high views, I remember visiting 180 on Bloor and Bay in the Manulife building. And I believe it's reopened as Antonio now, right, Andre? And it has some of the most spectacular views of the city. And uh, you take a really long elevator ride up to see it. You know, I actually really, really love this space because it's centrally located. When I have people come to visit from out of town, we used to go there. Uh, because it is the sort of place where you can go up and just have a drink or a couple of drinks and head out. And, you know, the only inconvenience is the long elevator ride, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of fun. It's almost like a roller coaster <laughs> ride, except it opens up to a restaurant. And I would say it's a super unpretentious place, too. I think, you know, I've been to a few rooftop spaces around Toronto and a lot of them sometimes you know do to like kind of have like that energy where you need to dress up and be a little bit shishi but this is a place that you can go to and enjoy as you said like a casual drink as well while still taking in all the views yeah definitely I mean it's really amazing how Bay and Bloor in that like the, the whole Manulife Center has become a culinary destination and I haven't had a chance to go to Antonio yet but if it's anywhere near as um as much fun as 180 was and having Italy in the same building, you could easily just spend an entire afternoon at the Manu Life Center with your life revolving around food, eh? It's true. It's true. You can have like an afternoon beer in that little basement bar at Italy, eat your way through Italy, and then go all the way up to Antonio. That's a great day. That's a great day right there, Andre. Yeah. I, okay, I guess go, let's go back to the basement because there's a basement spot that you've been to that I haven't had a chance to check out yet that um, is 100% noteworthy. I have eaten at this at this restaurant um, where, and it's a solid place to get decent uh, French bistro food, but I'm, I'm, I'm stealing your thunder a little bit. Let, let's hear about one of your favorite basements in the city. Yeah, Maison Selby on Sherbourne Street, I believe. And they, I, I've actually dined there as well. And the, I would say that even their main restaurant is a little bit noteworthy for aesthetic. You know, it has a little bit of that Victorian house energy. It has really beautiful wallpaper. It's kept a lot of that. I, I believe it's original architecture inside that building of that, you know, the older homes. Am I correct, Andre? Or did they, did they construct that? No, it, I believe it's original. I, I think even, to be honest, even if it isn't original, like in a city where I think one of my friends, I think a lot of people's frustrations with Toronto and the GTA in general is just a lot of the new construction are just sort of these glass towers that have no visual appeal to it. Where going up to Maison Selby, and like you said, it's a it's an old red brick Victorian house. Like it just, it's nice to see. You can imagine, like it's fun setting foot in a building like that and just be like, what did this used to be? What like what mm -hmm. did this look like in its glory? What did it look like when this was new construction? Like who built yes. it? Yes, yes, yes. And I don't know when they open it, but I just discovered that they have a little basement speakeasy now. Where, you know, you just go down a set of back stairs, which, uh, you know, seem very secretive and not a part of the main restaurant at all. And um, well, I attend an event there, so I don't I don't know if they do this every single time, but they had, you know, like a, a little moment where they secretly, you know, open up this panel door and it, and it just opens in this kind of, you know, dim lighting, cozy bar space where they do some curated cocktails, which I think is a really fun place to take your friends yeah i'm taking a look here so on the website they call it uh sous-sol which is the french word for basement it's open thursdays to saturday from 7 p.m until late but it does look like it's largely like a, they are advertising it on their website as a place for private celebrations so 
Um, I'm sure it's probably booked solid, as we've said. We're definitely past the point where if you're planning your Christmas party for or holiday party for 2022, it's probably too late. But I mean, the photos look incredible. I'm definitely having some serious FOMO about this. And you know, when you say holiday parties, who knows? I'm sure there's like a whole space between after December 25th all the way to New Year's Eve where people... Those are the best time to hold the holiday parties, okay? I know everyone plans their holiday parties leading up to Christmas, but I'm here to have some, you know, fun on December 28th or December 29th. <laughs> I, love that st- I love that stretch. You know what? My favorite stretch is to party, like, between Christmas and New Year's just because those days just feel like there's no pressure to them. Like, you've already dealt with the if, if seeing your family is stressful or doing the whole whirlwind travel is something that is a pain for you, a drag for you. You've already done it. And you just kind of have those couple days where it's just like, even if you're working during those days, most people aren't working that hard. And, you know, if you want to catch up with some of your like close friends that are all a little bit fed up with the whole craziness of the holidays, it's a perfect time to get together. Exactly. And I would say another spot for that um, that's kind of a little more casual, but very unique in terms of its layout is Bathurst Local. Okay. On Dun- It's Dundas and... Dundas and Bathurst, I'd like to say. Well, it's called Bathurst Local. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> and I, I've been wanting to check this place out for a while. It's, it's primarily a, a wine bar and a bottle shop, and that's really all they do. I, I don't even know if they do wines by the glass. They must, um, but they do mostly bottles. You order everything on your phone, and I think part of the reason why is that the way it's set out, it, it also it, uh, it seems like a home. It's just everything's just separated into different rooms. It's like you're literally walking into different rooms in the house outside of their front space, which is a little bit laid out more like a restaurant, but then you kind of walk back past the main restaurant and it's just literally different rooms. And you send different rooms and I ordering from your phone, I believe is probably just the most simple. And it goes into their POS and they, they give you a bottle and they give you some wine glasses and you just sit there and chill out. It just feels like you're sitting in someone's living room or in someone's parlor room or in someone's whatever room inside of a house and then a bunch of the rooms are also karaoke rooms if that's your vibe this is something where i definitely am intrigued about this i do love it when um a brand has very mysterious marketing their website's bathurstlocal322.com and it's just a string of text bathurst local the greatest bar in the world and private karaoke with uh, in brackets the time of your life Bottles of natty wine in sake, sorry, sake, sake. Yes, sake. Sake at bottle shop price, aka no corkage. Um, cocktails! Exclamation point. Top shelf whiskey, craft beers. Hey, want cool drinks for your home or party? Then it's a link to their bottle shop to take home. You know, bottle shops is something that we should probably cover in a later episode of Tasting Together, just because I think it's something a lot of people aren't really aware of something that changed during the pandemic but um that's going to be for another time when we come back from the break what are we talking about maroki wacky pairings all right that's coming up right after the break on 640 toronto you're listening to tasting together toronto's news today's talk 640 toronto Welcome back to Tasting Together. I'm your host, Andre Pru. I'm joined by my co-host, Maroki Tong. And we very abruptly, before going to the commercial break, talk about how we're going to talk about wacky pairings. Um, yeah. And Maroki, I know this was something that you brought to me when we were planning the show. I want you to define what a wacky pairing is. 
Oh my goodness. Now you're putting me on the spot. Just a little bit. And I <laughs> Well, I think it's because Andre the other day I well, for one, I saw Pepsi has a campaign right now how Pepsi can be mixed with just about anything and I, I and a friend actually sent me a reel of Lindsay Lohan pouring milk into Pepsi and stirring it and then calling it pilk. And Interesting. I, and the first thing I asked her was, I can't believe it didn't curdle. And so it kind of brought me on this thought process of what are things out there that we find so unconventional that we just do not fathom it working together, but yet they do. And I guess in this case, it was pilk. Um, <laughs> I have a hard time even just like taking that, that seriously to hear that word pilk said out loud, you know? <laughs> And there are things that sometimes I find really normal growing up, such as eating, you know, the entire fish. But I think that's more of a cultural difference. I think these are more things that um, beyond culture or beyond whatever, they're just seen completely out of the norm. And I know you have a few of those too, Andre. I do. I mean, um, like living in the world of, of wine and food, when I hear the word pairing, I mean, that's usually where my head goes at. But I mean, I really enjoy like the discussion that we were having about this was talking about pairing on and like a grander scale of things. You know, when I see a large brand like Pepsi or I know that Hellman's has a campaign right now where they're talking about um, an eggnog cocktail that is incorporating their mayonnaise as in ingredients is just like when I see large brands coming out with really strange pairings you know one eyebrow goes up and it's just like okay nobody's actually going to do this and they're doing it for the attention but on the other hand the foodie in me can't help but take a deep breath take a step back and just be like okay but i'm curious you know yeah, it's like but i also want to make it and it, find out whether it works or not yeah you because know, it's a thing like the cne uh let's go back in the in the way back machine now that's getting a little colder and imagine the the last weeks of summer i, I love seeing all the foods that get announced at the CNE but I do feel like over the past few years granted the few years off with the uh, with the pandemic but the the few years leading up to that it was less and less about creative cuisine and more and more about like what crap can we put together and will it will it taste good but I mean you know, I think for me, it's just sort of a long-winded say of, of unpacking like how I think about what defines wacky pairings. One of the nice things about living in Toronto is you do see a lot of unconventional pairings and the the cultural differences. Um, I'm I'm someone where going to dim sum. It's how I discovered chicken feet was eating first and asking questions later. And if the thought of chicken feet just turns you off, I mean that's okay. But I think you're really missing out on something that's quite delicious. Mm -hmm. And that's why I, I kind of said that wacky pairings for me is not necessarily about cultural differences totally. in food, right? Um, I think that is something that is just more adapting to what is completely, you know, considered normal for other people. So maybe in my sense, wacky pairings is something that might be seen universally as a little bit strange. I know totally. you brought up one, Andre, you know, since, you know, we said we're both of us being food and wine people, we talk about food and wine pairings a lot. You brought up champagne being paired with steak. Yeah, I mean, that's I how we got into the conversation about this. I thought when we, you said wacky pairings, we were going to talk more about uh, wine and food together. So yeah, that's that's my, that is my, like, I love talking to, to wine professionals about it, but I also love talking to non-wine professionals about it. I maintain that champagne and steak is one of the finest pairings on the planet. Now, why don't we break that down a little bit? I think 
Um, I think it's great talking with, you know, our listeners about this because a lot of people ask about, you know, what pairs well with X food. And, you know, traditionally, we often always recommend a full-bodied red with steak. Totally. Right? Like Cabernet Sauvignon, something tannic, something powerful to go against the big, powerful steak. Now, champagne is very, very different and, in, in, you know, complete opposite, mostly you know, being a higher acid and effervescent wine. And why don't you try and just break down, Andre, why why would champagne be such a great pairing with steak? I mean, this is why I had a, a bit of a hard time with us coming up with the with this segment is um, I tend to think of the entire experience of food as not just flavors, but also textures as well. So the thing about steak is when you eat a steak, it tends to be a little bit fatty. Even if you like really lean meat, like you're still getting those those juices, that texture. Like it completely coats the inside of your mouth with the flavor of that delicious piece of red meat. And when you drink a glass of champagne, like champagne is a wine that is harvested quite early. It has searing acidity. It keeps your palate cleansed and refreshed. Uh, and I mean, it's often why you think of like things like champagne and strawberries. You're getting a harmony there because strawberries have quite a bit of acid to them as well you get acid and acid so the flavors aren't battling each other i love contrast with wine and food and the thing is the acid in the champagne will keep your mouth refreshed while you're eating that big piece of meat and it it does highlight different parts of the flavors of both the champagne and the steak so i mean that's something that i really love to, to preach where it's just like yeah if 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 you're really worried and, and you're really hung up on what wine you're going to put on the table next to your food, the, the two most important things are, one, you should drink what you like regardless. If it doesn't go with the food, don't drink it with the food. But, I mean, red wine with red meat, white wine with wine meat is a fairly safe way to do your pairings. Like, it's not always the best and you might find better ways to do that. But the adage exists for a reason. Mm -hmm. I like what you described about contrast. One of the personal food on food pairings that I do that I, I find a lot of people turn their uh, nose up at is I do I used to eat a, a peanut butter and salsa sandwich or or a peanut butter with kimchi sandwich I think without a doubt that is on the surface a wacky pairing so so tell me why it works well what the way you know I consider peanut butter a, a rather savory food and a lot of my cuisine, you know, like when I say my cuisine, my, you know, Chinese cuisine or even or even other Asian cuisine, Thai cuisine, we use a lot of peanut sauce or peanut butter sauces to dip our foods in. And it's considered a savory product. And it's something to kind of cut through the saltiness of soy sauce or the acidity of vinegars. And for me, you know, I see peanut butter as a savory fatty product. Um, and therefore putting something like salsa or kimchi with it, which is more acidic, brighter, is a good contrast to the peanut butter. And, and it kind of creates this kind of dynamic pop inside the mouth. It kind of creates that larger cacophony of flavors. That is so fascinating to hear that. Um, and I'm definitely curious because like, I mean, one of the flavors in kimchi is fish sauce. Like it's quite pungent, but loaded with umami. And peanut butter as well, like it's just got that coating effect on your palate. So, um, I'm still I'm still hesitant, but I think I might give it a try. I'll bring the kimchi. That sounds great. Okay, so we're going to start leading into the next segment where we are actually going to be talking a little bit more in depth about wine and food and dessert, and that's something I'm 
I have very strong opinions about it. Anyone who follows me on Twitter at Andre Weinerview around Valentine's Day every year, I lament how awful wine and chocolate is together. You guys can fight me on that. But one of my favorite ways to um, enjoy dessert is to have a nice dram of of unpeated, so of Highland Highland Scotch and pie. I, I find that I actually I actually can't explain why it just goes so well together. I think maybe it makes the pastry taste extra buttery or something like that. Intuitively, I've never I've never had this pairing, and now I'm going to have to. Um, intuitively. That sounds delicious. And I realize now when you talk about pie, you talk about dessert pie. I think in my mind, I was thinking of savory pie and, you know, just kind of like leaning into the my like inner Irish Scottish self and just, you know, drinking something smoky and peaty along with a chicken pot pie and enjoying kind of that smokiness and maybe bringing out more smokiness inside of the in the kind of like like kind of transforming the chicken or the meat in the pie into something a little bit smoky whoa you actually blew my mind a little bit right there <laughs> i'm i'm french canadian by background and tortière is a part of my part of my heritage and a part of my christmas celebrations um this year i'm serving my tortière different and i will report back on that i will i'll be making my tortière uh actually i i will be making it first thing tomorrow morning in anticipation of uh christmas eve and uh wow that sounds like a good idea to do scotch and savory pie i didn't even think about that well there you have it folks you now have two ideas to try scotch with sweet pie and scotch with savory pie but speaking of sweet and savory we're going to be discussing a particular wine that is misunderstood in some ways in our next segment which is ice wine and if you stick around you're going to find a pairing that i had recently converted to that andre swears by but raises some eyebrows that's coming up after the break on tasting together 640 toronto you're listening to tasting together toronto's news today's talk 640 toronto Welcome back to Tasting Together. I'm your host, Andre Pru. I am joined by Maroki Tong. And we are also joined by 640 Toronto anchor, Danny Longo. So you know it's time for us to be talking about some bevies. Very exciting. And uh, I know this is a subject you're really familiar with too, Danny. We're talking about ice wine. And just before the break, we actually were talking about wacky pairings. And there is a food pairing that I recently have become a believer in. And Andre has preached it for ages, which is pairing ice wine with fried chicken. Have you done ice wine and fried chicken, Danny? I think I have. Yeah, I tend to. uh, I go to the ice wine festival in Niagara on the Lake every year. And there are some some wacky pairings. And I believe I have tried it. And, you know, anything spicy and sweet tends to go really well together usually. I like to talk about how ice wine is is probably the most misunderstood wine from Ontario. And, and the joke I like to tell is that somewhere at some office party on Bay Street, there is a bottle of Inniskillen ice wine from that very first vintage that is still being re-gifted. And I think it's just because when you head down to the wineries, the way ice wine is sold to you, Nobody really knows how to serve it properly. I think everyone's afraid of the sweetness that goes with ice wine. And a lot of the marketing around ice wine is is wineries and, and 
you know, tasting room staff who try to shy away from how sweet it really is. Because really, there's no denying ice wine is sweet. Chemically speaking, it has twice as much sugar as a can of Coke. Don't know if either of you knew that. Right. But the difference is you're not drinking a whole bottle, right? You're, I mean, you're sipping it in a small glass. You're not drinking a full can or a full bottle. So I think that's the, the greatness of it. I think the sweeter, the better. Um, and for me personally, um, I have been gifted those bottles of ice wine that you were just talking about because people know my affinity for ice wine. So they're like, hey, I've, I was given this bottle three years ago. Do you want it? Absolutely. I want it. Bring it here. Maroki, what was you? your experience with ice wine? Um. I think it was one of the few things that existed in my parents' cellar. My parents, um, I don't remember if I said it before, are not the biggest drinkers. And they really collect wine mostly as in they receive wine as a gift. They don't know what to do with it. They put it in the cellar. And, and so I've definitely seen bottles of ice wine in the cellar. And I would say the very first bottle I ever opened, um, I don't even remember what it is. It might have even had apple in it. So maybe hmm. it's not pure ice wine. I remember not liking it. And I think <laughs> it's not it had nothing to do with the sweetness. I think it had something to do with that weird flavoring in it. I don't dislike ice wine um, for purely health reasons. I don't tend to drink a lot of ice wine because, as you said, it's a lot of sugar to be consuming. So I know we, we've talked a bit about <laughs> ice wine and, and fried chicken. Um, and I mean, a big part of, of my observations of the wine industry in, in Niagara as a whole is I find when you go down to some of the wineries and they serve ice wine, which is something that is incredibly resource intensive. Um, there's a very strict set of rules under which it's made. It definitely is a point of pride. I mean, it's, it is the wine that put the Canadian wine industry on the map, but in terms of how it's, it's served and who's buying it, I find most places like they call it a, des a dessert wine and as such, put it next to dessert. And Generally speaking, we talked about it a bit in the previous segment, Maroki, is just, I'm not a fan of parallel flavors, like when it comes to assembling your plate or assembling your course of a meal. And I know this sounds a little bit pretentious on, on my part, but I find that when you pair sweet on sweet, a lot of the nuances of ice wine can get a little bit lost, which is what I really like about the fried chicken and, and ice wine pairings. You get the contrast of the salt and the sweet. Um even though you do have um, similar textures in the two. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I've had, uh, you know, at the Ice Wine Festival, they, they pair a food with, with, a, with an ice wine usually. And it's some places will pair, you know, their Vidal ice wine with, you know, a chocolate. And it's just, it's, it's too much. It's too much sugar. Whereas the places that have like a stew or a, a chili, oh, just so much better. And another thing I'd like to bring up is, I definitely love uh, my preference for ice wine is a Cabernet Franc or a Cabernet Sauvignon, which are very rare. But I find much more sweet, much more rich, more flavor to it than uh, than a Riesling or Vidal, which are obviously much more common. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love them all. And if you haven't been to the ice festival, ice wine festival, I suggest you go. It is definitely worth the trip, and it's a fun thing to do in the winter. I like that you brought up that ice wine is not necessarily made from always white wine and that there are ice wines made from red wines. And as you indicated, they uh, they have um, different profiles to, to them. And what I like about red uh, ice wine made from red grapes is there's usually a bit of this like earthy savoriness as well, which I could yeah. see also additionally playing well with food. And mm. when we were talking, you know, when you talk about stews and chilies, I'm reminded of how often we... Uh, 
often pair curries and spicy and other spicy foods, um, whether it's uh, Caribbean or Jamaican spices with Gewürztraminer or off dry Riesling. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it's similar. We use that sweetness to temper the spice. And I can see ice wine playing a huge role in that. And maybe it's also worth mentioning that we don't always have to serve ice wine straight up as itself. I've seen a few um, ice wine cocktails or mm. ice wine spritzers, which I think would lighten the sugar and, uh, you know, lighten up the sugar and give you a bit of a, of a refreshing sweeter beverage to pair with your meals as well. I've also, yeah, I've also had, so I guess, sparkling ice wines. Uh, they call them. I don't know if it's the same as a spritzer, but uh, a couple of wineries in the Niagara region, they serve those. Uh, Sue Ann Staff was one. I think Vienni had one as well. Innisfilling does and, have and one as well. Yeah, yeah, no, those are those are pure ice wine. It's just the, the method by which they're carbonated. And it's definitely like, that is a treat if you can get your hand on them. I think, I know Vienni's was the more affordable one. The one from Innisfilling is a little up there in price, but also like Innisfilling are the OG original mm -hmm. producers of ice wine. Um, so, I mean, it makes sense why their bottles are a little more prestigious. You know, when we talk about putting uh, ice wine, putting Canada on the map, I, you know, it is one of the most, it is the more or less only <laughs> exported Canadian wine out there um, with the exception of a few other wineries. Yeah. And I'm trying to think about how, you know, everyone else in the world perceives Canadian ice wine, whether they like it, you know, I, I always hear everyone says, oh, you know, when I when like my my international friends are always like, oh, yeah, we know you make ice wine, but they've never told me whether what they thought about it or whether they pair it with food. So now that we talk about it being such a, you know, a famous product, I'm, I'm very curious to know what the rest of the world actually thinks about our ice wine and whether they are whether they're pairing it with dessert, drinking it on its own or pairing it with savory food. Well, I know that prior to some complicated international relations with China, the majority of the ice wine being made in Canada was being exported for Asian markets, being exported to mainland China. Um, and it, it's actually, it's it's a whole entire fascinating story because there was a period where there were more bottles of counterfeit ice wine on the market in China than legitimate ones. So, I mean, that's something that has been an issue, but... I know for a lot of the producers in Niagara, especially premium producers of table wines, it's almost a double-edged sword of the success that while Canada is known for ice wine, just because a lot of Canadians don't drink it, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's sort of like, I, I remember being in Oregon, which is Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, talking about Canadian wine, because I love Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, and the sommelier at a really nice restaurant just being like, oh yeah, you're from Canada. I hear you make really good ice wine, and it's just like, I think one of the problems we're facing is that's the only thing that the Canadian wine industry is being known for internationally. Well, let's put some Canadian ice wine back on people's plates. So as we wrap up yes. the segment, Danny, why don't you share your favorite ice wine? My favorite. Okay. Uh, that's a tough one. I would probably say, um, once again, toss uh, Cabernet Franc ice wine. I believe it was a 2013 and they also have a capsule from 2019. That was just incredible. Rare bottle indeed. How about you, Maroki? I will go to the sparkling ice wine and shout out the Enniskillen sparkling ice wine that I actually got from you, Andre, in 2020, and it brought me joy. You know, for me, any vintage of um, Henry Appellum Riesling ice wine is what brings a little bit of joy to my life. Um, I think Riesling is just such a fantastic grape for making ice wine. And if you ever come to my house to enjoy a little bit of ice wine, you will find it served with the appetizers or with some greasy fried chicken, some foie gras, 
you will never find it paired with dessert in Andre's house. Excellent. Well, Andre, we've come to the end of tasting together, and there's something very specific that we haven't addressed yet that we're uh, definitely going to have to no, next week. No, no, no. <laughs> but yes, yes, I mean, we have this this show. The people need to know what the perfect wine to serve with their turkey dinner is going to be, and we are dedicating an entire segment next week to the right wine and uh, and how just like I don't like to talk about this. I thought I, I thought I warmed you up by pairing, you know, get, offering pairings of latkes and brisket and ham. So, stay tuned, folks. We're on every Saturday at five p.m. and I promise you, next week we're gonna give you the holiday pairings you are all looking for on six forty Toronto. We'll see you next week.